Chapter 38 of Science in Short Chapters. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Andrew Howley. AndrewJHowley.com. Science in Short Chapters by W. Matthew Williams. Chapter 38. On the so-called craternecks and volcanic bombs of Ireland. A paper read at the Geologists' Association, December 6th, 1878. Mr. Hull, Physical Geography and Geology of Ireland, page 68, under the head of Volcanic Necks and Basaltic Dikes, says that, although the actual craters and cones of eruption have been swept from the surface of the country by the ruthless hand of time, yet the old necks by which the volcanic mouths were connected with the sources of eruption can occasionally be recognized. They sometimes appear as masses of hard trap, columnar or otherwise, projecting in knolls or hills above the upper surface of the sheets through which they pierce. In other cases, the neck consists of a great pipe choked up by bombs and blocks of trap, more or less consolidated, bombs which have been shot into the air and have fallen back again. He then refers to one of these near Portrush, and proceeds to state that the rock on which stands the ruined castle of Dunluce is formed of bombs of all sizes up to six feet in diameter of various kinds of basalt, dolerite, and amygdaloid firmly cemented, and presenting a precipitous face to the sea. In a note dated September 1877, Mr. Hull states that subsequent examination, since the above was written, on the rock of Dunluce Castle and the cliffs adjoining, has led him to suspect that we have here, instead of old volcanic necks, simply pipes, formed by the filtration out of the chalk into which the basaltic masses have fallen and slipped down, thus giving rise to their fragmental appearance. Further on, page 146, he describes without any skeptical comment the remarkable mass of agglomerate made up, as on the southern flanks of Slivgulian, of bombs of granite which have been torn up from the granite mass of the hills below and blown through the throat of an old crater. Other geologists still adhere firmly to the bomb theory, some ascribing the bombs to subaqueous rather than subaerial ejection. Immediately under Dunluce Castle is a sea-worn cavern or tunnel, which is about 40 or 50 feet high at its mouth, affording a fine section of this curious conglomerate. The floor of the cavern, which slopes upward from the sea, is strewn with a beach of boulders. The resemblance of this beach to those I had recently examined at the foot of the boulder clay cliffs of Galway Bay, and described in a paper read to the British Association, suggested the explanation of the origin of the rock I am about to offer. In shape and size they are exactly like the Galway shore boulders, those nearest the sea being the most rounded. Higher up the slope, where less is exposed to wave action, they are subangular. They differ from the Galway boulders in being chiefly basaltic instead of being mainly composed of carboniferous limestone. Some of these at Dunluce are granitic, and a few, if I am not greatly mistaken, are of carboniferous limestone. I had not at hand the means of positively deciding this. Neither could I find any unquestionable examples of glacial striation among them, although at the upper part I saw some lines on boulders that were very suggestive of partially obliterated scratches. On looking at the cavern walls surrounding me, the theory so obviously suggested by the boulders on the floor was strikingly confirmed by their structure and general appearance. The embedded bombs are subangular and of irregular shape and varying composition, and the matrix of the rock is a brick-like material just such as would be formed by the baking of boulder clay. 
the inference that I was looking upon a bank or deposit of glacier drift that had been baked by volcanic agency was irresistible. I was unable to see on any part of the extensive section or among the fragments below a single specimen of an unequivocal volcanic bomb. No approach to anything like those described by Sir Samuel Baker in his Nile Tributaries of Abyssinia, the miniature representatives of which, ejected from the Bessemer Converter, I have figured and described in Nature, Volume 3, pages 389 and 410, where Sir Samuel Baker's description is quoted. I have witnessed the fall of masses of lava during a minor eruption of an inner crater of Mount Vesuvius. These, as they fell upon the ground around me, were flattened out into thin cakes. There was no approach to the formation of subangular masses like those displayed upon the Dunluce cavern walls. Some years ago, a project for melting the basaltic rock known as Rowley Rag and casting it into molds for architectural purposes was carried out near Oldbury, and I had an opportunity of watching the experiment, which was conducted on a large scale at great expense by Messrs. Chance. It was found that if the basalt cooled rapidly, it became a black obsidian, and to prevent the formation of such brittle material, the castings and the molds which enclosed them had to be kept at a red heat for some days and very gradually cooled. Begin footnote. Geologists who may be interested in seeing the results of this experiment will find on the Edgbison Vestry Hall in Enville Road, near the Fiveways, Birmingham, some columns, massive window pieces, doorways, and ornamental steps cast from the fused Rowley rag and slowly cooled. End footnote. It is physically impossible that lava ejected under water in lumps no larger than these boulders could have the granular structure which they display. The fundamental idea upon which this bomb theory is based will not bear examination. Such bombs could not have been shot into either air or water and have fallen back again into the volcanic neck at any other time than during an actual eruption, and at such time they could not have remained where they fell and have become embedded in any such matrix as now contains them. True volcanic bombs and ordinary spattering lumps of lava are, as we know, flung obliquely out of active craters and distributed around, while those which are ejected perpendicularly into the air and return are re-ejected and finally pulverized into volcanic dust if this perpendicular ejection and return are continued long enough. In the course of a rapid drive round the Antrim coast, I observed other examples of this peculiar conglomerate, and have reason to believe that it is far more common than is generally supposed. I found it remarkably well displayed at a place almost as largely visited as the giant's causeway, and where it nevertheless appears to have been hitherto unnoticed, viz. Caracarid, where the public car stops to afford visitors an opportunity of examining or crossing the rope bridge, etc. Here, the whole formation is displayed in a manner that strikingly illustrates my theory. There is an overlying stream of basalt forming the surface of the isolated rock, and this basalt rests directly upon a base of conglomerate, having exactly the appearance that would result from the slow baking of a mass of boulder clay. The sea gully that separates the insular rock from the mainland displays a fine section above 80 feet in thickness and has the advantage of full daylight as compared with the Dunluce cave. That this is no mere neck or pipe is evident from its extent. Its position below the basalt cap refutes the above-quoted subsequent explanation, which Mr. Hull and others have recently adopted. The heterogeneous bomb-like character of the boulders is not so strongly marked as in the Dunluce rock, and this may arise from the closer proximity of the basalt, 
which, coming here in direct contact, would be likely to heat the clay matrix, itself formed mainly of ice-ground basalt, to incipient fusion, and thereby render it more like the basalt boulders it contains than the other clay that had been less intensely heated on account of greater distance from the lava flow. The path leading to the ladder by which the bridge is approached passes over such conglomerate, and further extensions are seen in sections around. I saw sufficient in the course of my hurried visit to indicate the existence of a large area of this particular formation. At a short distance from Caracarid, on the way to Ballycastle, the car passes in sight of considerable deposits of ordinary boulder clay, uncovered and unaltered. The blocks of basalt, etc., embedded in this, correspond in general size and shape with the bombs, excepting that some of the latter have a laminated or shaly character near their surfaces. I regret my inability to do justice to this subject in consequence of the fact that the above explanation of the origin of this curious formation only suggested itself when hurrying homeward after a somewhat protracted visit to Ireland. As I may not have an opportunity of further investigation for some time to come, I offer the hypothesis in this crude form in order that it may be discussed, and either confirmed or refuted by the geologists of the Ordnance Survey or others who have better opportunities of observation than I can possibly command. Should this conglomerate prove to be, as I suppose, a drift deposit altered by a subsequent flow of lava, it will supply exceedingly interesting data for the determination of the chronological relations of the glacial epoch to that period of volcanic activity to which the lavas of the northeast of Ireland are due though it will nowise disturb the general conclusion that the great eruptions that overspread the Cretaceous rocks of this region and supplied the boulders of my supposed metamorphosed drift occurred during the Miocene period, it will show that the volcanic epoch was of vastly greater duration than is usually supposed, or that there must have been two or more volcanic epochs, preglacial, as usually understood, and postglacial, in order to supply the lava overflowing the drift. This post-glacial extension of the volcanic period has an especial interest in Ireland, as the Annals of the Four Masters and other records of ancient Irish history and tradition abound in accounts of physical changes, many of which correspond remarkably with those of recent occurrence in the neighborhood of active and extinct volcanoes. In a paper read before the Royal Irish Academy, June 23, 1873, and published in its proceedings, Dr. Sigerson has collected some of the best authenticated of these accounts and compares them with similar phenomena recently discovered in Naples, Sicily, South America, Siberia, etc., etc. The great sobriety of diction and circumstantial precision of statement of names, dates, etc., which characterize these accounts render them well worthy of the sort of comparison with strictly scientific data which Dr. Sigerson has made. As we now know that man existed in Britain during the interglacial, if not the preglacial period, and as so violent a volcanic disturbance as that which poured out the lavas of Antrim and the Mourne district could scarcely have subsided suddenly, but was probably followed by ages of declining activity, it is not at all surprising that this period of minor activity should have extended into that of tradition and the earliest of historical records. End of chapter 38 Recording by Andrew Howley, andrewjhowley.com.